All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kular. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Welcome back to another episode of Powerful. My name is Jeff Coulard, and today I have the pleasure and privilege to sit down with a good friend and colleague of mine who worked at Enviro's Base Camp with me for a number of years uh, at a really critical time when we embraced feedback-informed treatment, when we got some funding to do some outcome and evaluation work to ask ourselves some of those tough questions about what works in treatment, does treatment work, for starters, and then what about it works, and who does it work best for, and some of those questions that sometimes we'd rather not ask ourselves because it's easier to lean on the anecdotes, lean on the stories, lean on the experiences we have around the campfire that make us feel good inside, but not really knowing if we're really impacting our clients in a meaningful way. And so a few years into the journey at Enviro's base camp, realized that we couldn't call ourselves a world-class treatment program. We couldn't even pretend to be world-class if we didn't have a sense of, you know, pretty concrete understanding of what the impact of the program was and what the outcomes were for the clients who were engaged in our services. Uh, so enter Liam Law and a host of other characters who took it upon themselves to build a routine outcome monitoring system, uh, a system of getting reliable, consistent feedback from clients about their treatment experience. Not only were they feeling better in treatment, were some of the symptoms of distress being alleviated throughout treatment from both the client and the parent perspective, but also to give us feedback about the treatment journey itself and what was most helpful, what was least helpful, and to give us solid information to change programming, to improve the quality of our services. So I caught up with Liam, and he's on Vancouver Island right now working as a clinician in mental health and finishing up his graduate degree. And yeah, enjoy this conversation. We dig into the power of feedback and why it's so important when you're offering services to vulnerable people and how it can be used to not only prove that what you're doing is effective, but improve the quality of the work that you do. And this is the third installment of the Powerful Communities, How to Build Powerful Communities series that's been a bit of a retrospective look for me at Enviro's Base Camp, a place that I spent about a dozen years working in addiction and mental health and trying to build a team of people and a program uh, that we could be proud of. And as you may know, that program got shut down recently, lost its funding after about a 15-year run. And you know, I was really blessed and thankful and grateful to be a part of that journey. And this is my effort to capture some of the learning and to get it to you, get it into your hands to pass the torch of the work that was done there into uh, your program, your staff team, and your practice. So I hope you enjoy. And don't forget to check out the other episodes with uh, Jessica Mills and Lisa Arsenault, all about the other ingredients of powerful communities. Liam, 
welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jeff. So today I wanted to talk about feedback informed practice. It's the third element of powerful communities. And so on this podcast, I've talked to people about um, problems to solve, like a challenge or a vision or a problem that unites a community, brings a community together to, to tackle something that um, is aligned across across the team. And then I talked to Lisa Arsenault about values and values and practice and how those how important it is that the practices and the behaviors and the kind of the rhythms of the team reflect the actual values that they hold. Like those things are congruent with each other because value incongruence tends to kind of crush communities um, or at least it crushes helping professionals when they're being asked to operate in a certain way and then they're being treated in a different way or you know their their own felt experience isn't reflective of the values. And the third ingredient of powerful communities that I see, communities that are really making a difference in the world are the ones that are tracking their impact and making sure that the outcomes that they're getting are aligned with their intentions, right? With the objectives that they set out for the program. And so I wanted to talk to you about the shift in practice that, that accompanies that that principle or that mindset, what happens when a program starts to seriously, you know, take seriously their outcomes. And because you were right in the thick of it at Enviro's base camp yeah. a few years ago, when we made that kind of pretty significant shift in practice to really try and center the client's voice and to get feedback about our own practice and some of those things. And so maybe for the listener, why don't you just give us a little bit of a bio background around how you found yourself to be at Enviro's base camp at a certain point in time. I think it was around 2010, 2012, somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It was 2012 kind of like late in the fall of 2012 and yeah, I arrived there. Um, and when I got there, everyone was, uh, new and, and there was a few people that came right after me that were, were also new. And, uh, I know you and Lisa and Kelly had been there, you know, and, and others had been there for, for a long time before that, but it was like, uh, a whole new picture. And uh, so I found myself amongst a lot of us kind of learning, how to how to do that work how to be in that place um all together and quickly sorry go ahead well what brought you there how'd you find yourself because it's i'm always interested in the the journey that people have to and through life so what got you to base camp like the pre-2012 arrival yeah um i think yeah i mean i've interrogated this question for myself a whole bunch (laughs) um i think Somewhere I just have this deep curiosity about how to be a good person. There is some, you know, I, I find some people in life tend to be seekers and for some reason I am uh, on the rails of looking for what's right and what's moral and what's good for people. And at the time I was definitely a little lost about where to go. And um, yeah, I've thought that working in the woods, doing something I love, which is being outdoors, but doing it with and as an act of service for young people and their families that were struggling with substance use, I thought, well, this seems like a good fit for me. And it really was. I remember the first year of being in that place, really liking my life at work more than I did at home. <laughs> and not in a bad way. I just liked being there. I thought how, I remember sitting around a fire once there and being like, how did this place exist and how did I not know about it? Yeah. So that would be a bit more of the, the arrival story and how I, how I ended up there. Cool. Maybe we can dig into that down the road. And that sounds like an interesting conversation just to have about, because I think a lot of us are seeking meaning in our work and trying to figure that out um, as we go. And so yeah. let's park that and let's, let's definitely talk about it. Um, so you arrive at Basecamp 2012, the team is new 
And that was right around the time when we got some funding from Health Canada and we hired some researchers out of the state, Lee and Keith, a couple of academics to come in and help us design a client-centered evaluation system to really interrogate our practice because, um, well, lots of reasons. For me as, as the manager at the time, it was really around ethics, the ethics of taking taxpayer money and spending it on addictions treatment out in the wilderness. Um, also the ethics of asking young people and their families to give up three months of their life and come out for this treatment. And we couldn't say definitively whether it worked or not. And I think a lot of programs are in that place. Uh, I talked to a lot of people and I asked them that tough question that Lee and Keith asked us, how do you know you do great work? And we get a lot of anecdotes. And that was certainly the place that Basecamp was in. We had a lot of anecdotes of success, a lot of stories of sitting around a campfire and having those moments of breakthrough or breakdown. Um, but kind of your perspective, walking into that as, as a new youth worker as well, you know, it's a kind of a new adventure for you, part of a new team embarking on this new mission to really evaluate our services. Can you kind of fill the listener in on what that actually looked like, practically speaking, because you were right, right there um, in the direct service provision of that kind of new way of doing addiction treatment. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think it's important to say that um, you and Lisa and Kelly as a leadership team really ran us through the definition of what we were as a pro as a program and what what our values were. And I know that you spoke to Lisa about that, um, but that was a, just an absolutely essential piece. And I actually go back and forth. That might have been even once we start talking about feedback in a moment, it might even be that feedback helped clarify what the values were and that that is such an important thing to have consensus among the staff team. Um, but yeah, so once I arrived, we did the the practice of building and clarifying what our, our architecture was as a program and what we were there to do. And then Lee and Keith came, like you said. And I mean, I was fortunate to take on the a bit of a lead role with implementing all of that and and the way it worked is we sat down, we looked, here's our program. And we used Lee and Keith's expertise to ultimately say, well, what are the ways that we can measure whether we're doing good work? And they brought them on board feedback informed treatment or progress monitoring, routine outcome monitoring, as you know, it goes, it's got a lot of names. Um, and I think that the most amazing thing, I mean, the brass tacks of that is we basically started asking youth and their families once a week or whenever for families, whenever we could to just use, I mean, we use survey questionnaires, but the further I go into this work, there's, there's lots of ways to ask for feedback, but we did that. We had, we used survey questionnaires and basically it was, how are they doing now? And it allowed us to build some trends over time, you know? And, you know, uh, you know, I remember Allie saying, uh, who was another shift supervisor at the time, people aren't numbers. And, you know, she's absolutely right. And there's lots of ways to get feedback. Um, but the best thing is that we started taking their feedback from their, from their surveys and their questionnaires and going to them and saying, does this fit? Is this right for you? And it was just this multiple layers of feedback that all went back to what are we trying to do? And ultimately we're trying to help people be well. I think, yeah, to go a little further with that, I mean, from there it also speaks to not only does it have some clinical utility for a client, if you want to call it that, it's directly helpful for the for the young people that we're trying to serve. What's but directly, also, what's directly helpful about it? Like, how does it how does it change or how does it shift a client's experience of themselves in in the treatment process? Because I think that's actually the most potent 
aspect of it is like directly impacting a client's journey. And as a manager, it was really tempting to get enamored with the big picture data, you know, the trends over mm-hmm. time of you know, what's the difference between boys and girls and like you're trying to break it down and use it for, you know, marketing or fund development or annual reports. But the real focus and the real utility was at that kind of direct, like, let's make plans, how's treatment going, that kind of thing. So maybe what did you notice that happened when clients started to kind of see a picture of, of their change over time? Because um, really, that's kind of what it was. But what, what difference did it make for them? Yeah, I mean, I think the the hallmark of that is that one, it boosted clients' self awareness of where they were at, and second of all, it allowed us as a program and each of our individual staff to uh, have a more explicit collaboration on what the client's goals were. It, it really let people say, "This is what I want to get," and how do we get there together? Um, that being said, of course, it was subject to a whole bunch of variables and it worked better for some clients than others, you know, mm-hmm. and it worked better for some staff than others, but it ultimately was about trying to make a culture amongst the staff team that was, let's go and talk to these youth and their families about what, what is most important to them and how can we help them improve? Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, pretty much everywhere I go in addiction and mental health treatment in the sector, everybody's got client centered somewhere in the brochure, somewhere on the website, somewhere on a plaque on a wall somewhere. And then you start to ask, tell me more about client centeredness and what does it actually look like? You start to talk to clients and they're like, yeah, no, it doesn't feel centered. Like it doesn't feel like my needs are (laughs) centered here. It feels like I'm part of a program and I'm either on the bus or I'm off the bus. Um, And there's a real tendency sometimes to look at outcomes through a very narrow lens where we're after good outcomes and we don't want to know if our outcomes are bad right and i think one of the biggest shifts for the staff team when you talk about culture and a culture of feedback is that there's no such thing as a bad outcome there's no such thing if you're doing it often enough right the problem with most outcome and evaluation systems that i see is that it's pre and post right we get some data on the front end of yeah. the treatment journey and then we wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and three or six or nine months later we get another data point and it's either up or down or the same and we've lost the entire story of what's happening through treatment. And so that frequency allows us to say, well, it's actually, you know, you're feeling more distressed this week than we're last week. We'll talk about that. How do you make sense of this? Right. That utility piece for, for staff to be able to reflect that back in the clients to make sense, make some meaning out of that, what those numbers say. Um, I think that that was an important cultural shift. Um, how did that go? Like, how did you, because you were right there having those conversations with staff as they wrestled through those conversations. What are some, what are some of the barriers for, let's just say, helping professionals or a youth worker or a social worker to take on feedback in a, in a really meaningful way? Because you've now had some experiences post base camp out in the sector. You probably hit and miss with some conversations around feedback and form practice, I would imagine. Um, can you, what are your thoughts on that? It's not really a question there. I don't know if there's a question on that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, for a little bit of context, after we did it at base camp, you know, I, you know, was grateful to have the opportunity to go around Enviros and do several, work with several programs to do this. And so I really had an opportunity to, I, I don't know, cut my teeth and trying to figure out how to get individual staff and staff teams on board with doing this sort of thing. And, you know, I can't remember who said it, but I was recently talking to somebody who said, uh, uh, culture eats structure for breakfast, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just thought, 
oh boy, that rings really true to a lot of this because some of it's really difficult. I think Lee and Keith were, I remember them um, being very, uh, just praising us saying, you know, really good for you for being willing to ask this question. Because mm-hmm. asking that question for feedback is one with it. That's hard because it might come back that this isn't working mm-hmm. or it's not working well enough. It can also come back with, there's parts of this are great. Here's what you can do better. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's definitely one of the first barriers is whether that's a program leadership discussion or an entire team culture discussion, it's just a scary question to ask, you know, I think since then I've had a little bit of experience with um, asking that in, in one-to-one counseling relationships and you can feel it in that moment. You can really ask a client, is this relationship working for you? Mm-hmm. And you got to be, you know, kind of, kind of on it to be, to be able to hear no, yeah. you Actually, know, Actually, now that you've asked, thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that that just asking that question, however it gets asked, whether that's in a program evaluation way or just a one-to-one relationship way, you know, and quite frankly, we should be asking that question in our personal relationships well, mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah. But that's definitely a hurdle to it. Yeah. I think, you know, um, I, I talked to a lot of programs about the kind of the dual purposes of outcome and evaluation work and we get pretty focused, especially higher up the food chain. As you go in leadership, you get focused on proving your outcomes, right? I want to prove that this program works and we forget about improving the program. Right. And so there's a dual, yeah, yeah, yeah. dual piece. It's like, we can, we can prove some, to some degree if we have nice, like validated tools and we have a, kind of a robust structure around it. And, you know, we can prove to a certain extent the interventions, the programs, their effectiveness. And we can also use it to improve our practice. And that's the return it to the client piece at the individual practitioner level. We can improve our own individual practice, like you say, by asking those hard questions about relationship and effectiveness. And is this working for you? Yeah. And are you better yeah. than you were last week? And those are scary questions uh, for yeah. anybody to ask, especially when you know there's a lot wrapped up for the helping professional in being a helping professional. And there's a lot of ideas. Yeah, it's, it's like the client email. themselves, the clients themselves wanted to be really good. And then the heart of the frontline workers are absolutely focused on the client. And so in so many ways, they're like, you know, yeah, sure. The program and, you know, it's big data is important too. But what I want to know is, is this helpful for this person in front of me right now? Because that's why I'm doing this job because I care about that person, you know, and they have so much heart in it. And I think that some of what was possible with doing this sort of feedback informed treatment where, it serves that kind of direct impact to the client helps get staff on board with doing it um, and helps, you know, it goes beyond just being on board with doing those questionnaires, but can transform into something that really drives people's work with, with clients. Yeah. It's interesting. I think of you know, a coworker of ours who um, she was actually in tears around the campfire. I believe the first time Lee and Keith were mm-hmm. at the program mm-hmm. and um, evolved over time to really embrace it. And she was one of those, like, am I being replaced by a graph, right? Is this, you know, people are numbers kind of yeah. mentality, which is no. <laughs> sometimes at, at base camp, you know, very relationship oriented place. Um, I got a note from her a few years after the fact, and she had another program up North and it was one of those emails. Like I can't imagine my life now without this. It's really hard work when you don't have the client feedback to help mm. guide, guide practice. Um, and I think that that's, that's what stands out for me so much within this conversation around feedback informed practice is the utility 
for, because it's hard work, right? It's hard for clients. It's also hard for direct service providers, the youth workers, the social workers, the psychologists to not know if you're having an impact, right? And basically just crossing your fingers and knocking on wood, right? Are we going to have the impact that we want to? Um, As soon as we get over that hurdle of wanting that feedback and seeing how useful it is, it it really, it's a turning point for a lot of people, I think in their practice. Uh, we'll talk about yeah. some of the barriers. What are some of the things that you saw work really well? What were some of the practical things or types of conversations or training or, you know, just anything. So leader who's listening to this and wants to think about improving their outcome and evaluation system in their program or their, at their, at their organization, what are some of those initial steps um, in hindsight? Now that you look back, it's like that worked really well, or that was something we did that didn't, wasn't as effective. Um, I'm trying yeah. to break, if we can break down a little practical roadmap for people to finish this conversation off. Um, yeah. So that there's some, some action items that people can take. Uh, where would you start? Or, I mean, you had that opportunity to go around to a bunch of programs and uh, get them, get them going. So, yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I noticed when I started to do that is that I could not do it as an outsider. And for anybody who's considering doing this sort of thing, you need to find somebody who has some passion for it and you need them to hustle um, and really listen to frontline staff. You need to build it with them. And, you know, we, we, we Enviros made those program champions. Who are the people in this program that can carry the torch and really try to do it. And I think it's going to be hard enough with those people involved. And so to, to not do it, not to have somebody that's close to the front line and really helping to drive the implementation of it, um, I think is a, you know, it's just a must to not, to not do it would, would just be to shoot oneself in the foot. I think it needs to be encultured in a way where there needs to be, it needs to not only show up in this thing that we do on Sunday afternoons, it needs to show up in case consultations. It needs to be embedded in the language about how staff teams talk about people. Uh, that, that's the first two that come immediately to my mind. Uh, um, what what sort of things come to your mind? Maybe you jog by. Yeah, no, I think um, not like some flexibility, some building some flexibility yeah. into, especially out of the gates. Um, you know, I, actually I'm recently working with an organization called The Doorway. They're doing, they work with homeless youth. It's a two-year program where they it's basically just a goal setting program. They come in, they set goals, they get paid cash to set goals. And then they come back, you know, once a week or once a month and they, they earn money to set life goals. It's a really fascinating model. And one, one thing that that we did uh, to kick things off was actually get a little panel of participants of clients of the organization. We had four or five of them and we called them advisors and we paid them to give us advice and we paid them to test the tools that we wanted to use. And they gave us great feedback and they incorporated it into the rhythms of of their cycle. And they gave us, and actually had one of them join me to do a training session for a bunch of volunteers. Um, And so that's like we say participant centered and then we forget to ask participants if they understand the questions that we're asking them, if those questions are useful to them in the yeah. journey, right? We just yeah. take something off a shelf or we take something because we went to some guy's training, right? And like that real customization piece is yeah. critical because, you know, we, we, we adapted our evaluation at Basecamp a few times. There's a few different iterations of it. Different tools got layered in, got taken out. Wording on questions got changed, right? Yeah, I remember, I remember some clients complaining about a question and us going to Lee and Keith and being like, what do we do? And they're like, oh, just change the question and make it match them, yeah. you know? shocking right make it make it meaningful right and so that's the that's the piece i think that that's you know make it meaningful for clients 
in, in treatment or in your program, make it meaningful for the direct service providers, the people who are tasked yeah. with helping them through the journey. If it's meaningful at those layers of service, it's going to be meaningful for your supervision. It's going to be meaningful for your managers and it's going to be meaningful for your funders, right? Because yeah. you're going to get the data. Like one of the biggest problems in most outcome and evaluation systems is actually missing data, right? Because it's not meaningful. Yeah, right. And so service providers forget about it accidentally every Sunday afternoon for three months, right? And then you've got yeah. these big holes in your, in your data set. Um, so figuring yeah. out, you know, slowing down that design process implementation like spreading that out a little bit. Don't just come walking in with a stack of new evaluation forms and expect anything to change. Really trying to find ways yeah. to, to root it, like you say, and culture it into the place. Yeah, that makes me think too, something that we really focused on when we were doing it agency-wide was you need to get a win for clients and frontline staff right away. Mm-hmm. Like, And that means not having a whole stack. And it means starting, starting light. Things yeah. can, additional measures and additional ways of obtaining feedback can come later. but find something that's useful and practical right off the bat it is really important. I, I think that that's the, the other thing I wanted to say that's really important um, to do as people get this sort of thing going is make sure that staff know that it is not about their performance. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and, and with that comes with, as a, as a leader or a manager in any of these contexts, the point of this is not to evaluate staff effectiveness. And you can't like mm-hmm. just full stop. That should not be part of people's performance evaluations. It's, it's actually about clients and it's helps clinicians get over the fear of using them. If they know that this isn't going to be about, about them and about their effectiveness. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. To add. That's a great point. Cause I think that's probably one of the fears of, of frontline practitioners you know, certainly the fear of being replaced by an algorithm or a graph or a number, but also that fear of this is going to be held against me if I'm not effective clinician. Right? And there's a lot of like, that goes right to the core of, you know, am I safe here? Right. And so I think yeah. that's, a, that's a great point um, to kind of decouple that. And it really is about just improving practice. And, you know, one thing that we did quite a bit of was, you know, on other monthly staff meetings, I remember we would highlight a piece of information, like we'd pull some data out and we'd highlight it for the staff team. And we'd then discuss as a staff team, well, what does this mean, right? What's the, what does this feedback mean for us and how should it shift our practice? Um, and so the, the one piece, you know, maybe we'll just kind of touch on this and then wrap this conversation up. I don't want it to be an epic, um, <laughs> which it could, could be, um, <laughs> is this idea of the evaluation side. So outcomes are usually kind of very client-centered. How are you doing? You know, we use something called the OQ, uh, the YOQ, the Youth Outcome Questionnaire, as kind of our main outcome tool or instrument. And that's a very client-centered, you know, here's, how are you doing? Distress in these different life areas. You know, there's lots of different tools out there that measure something like that. And then the, the layers on top of that were, now can you give us feedback about our program? Can you yeah. tell us, can you tell us how you experienced group therapy this week? Can you tell us how you experienced individual therapy? Can you tell us how you experienced wilderness trips or the ropes course or any of those discrete kind of program elements so that we could see what was working and what wasn't working? at the individual client level, but also at the population level and then longer term. And then we can start to break it down. You know, the data that came out of that was so rich because we could start to see the effectiveness of different treatment components over time. And in the first month of treatment, you know, group therapy wasn't as effective as it was in the the middle, the month two to month three. Right. And with that information, we can start to adjust programming, right. To better meet the needs to better individualize care at that population level. Um, So that, 
utilization focused evaluation is what it's called. It's mouthful. But when, yeah. you, when you pair that with routine outcome monitoring or progress monitoring, it's a really potent combination. Yeah. You're, you're seeing the impact you're having at the client level and you're also getting feedback about your own practice. Um, and just as an anecdote, something that you'd be interested in, um, Kelly and I actually worked with a Hope Place Center out in Ontario for two years, helping them implement this kind of routine outcome model yeah. plus utilization focused evaluation. And they took their men's treatment program, which was a 90 day program, and they cut it down to 47 days based on the data showed that all of the things was happening on the front end. Um, yeah, all right. And then their mm-hmm. women's treatment program, they increased the clinical effectiveness by about 60% in about 10 months. Their OQ scores. Shot no way. Incredibly fast. And so that's to me, like we, and we experienced that at base camp. We saw our outcomes yeah. improving over time. Um, and that's the point is improving practice. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any last minute thoughts, advice, resources that people should check out if they're interested in this kind of feedback informed practice and really digging into it as, as a program or as a practitioner? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of, um, there's a few publicly available scholarly articles on it, just really helping summarize what's, what's going on. Then there's also, I know Scott Miller, uh, he's doing a lot of that work and, um, he's running a whole, you know, series of trainings on this using his tools. And, um, it just, there's, there's lots of it out there. You just need to start looking. And I think it's happening more and more. I think there's also just a huge opportunity. I don't think we really got there at Basecamp, but, um, to automate this stuff, I think that the developments that have happened in the last number of years that clients can be doing this on tablets very quickly. And it just, totally deburdens any administrative component of it and also just makes it kind of, you know, helpful and direct. Yeah. No, that's a great point. There's tools that are out there that if people are worried about a huge paperwork burden on, on their staff, which is fair because it's a paperwork intensive um, job to begin with. Uh, there are a lot of automated tools uh, that's a couple of minutes and the clients fill up their questionnaires and it's scored and it's by your fingertips. To- yeah. Cool. Well, I think, yeah, I think that probably wraps up our conversation. I think a parting piece of advice from me for folks who are leading this type of change is to really lean into the culture of, of feedback and make it a, like connect it very concretely to the vision, mission, and values of the organization and to not make it a, a burden as a thing that we're doing to imp- to prove that what we do works. And, you know, it, 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 if it felt as an administrative burden, an extra layer of paperwork, uh, you're just not going to get buy-in from staff or from clients. And so really slowing it down a little bit and really listening, I think, to the to the staff and to the clients about what they're hoping for. Like what what do what do the outcomes actually look like here? And when we did that, we realized that it's not actually about addiction. You know, this addiction treatment program, we weren't asking just substance use questions. We weren't just asking, did you relapse? Right. We were asking different domains of life and then other like mindfulness questionnaires and all kinds of stuff got layered in because people are whole people. And when we look at it that way, um, I think we can't help but improve our practice. Just on a, on a farewell to base camp note, cause we know that the program is, it's coming to an end. You know, I just also, I think that none of this work would have happened without the other people that were there. And I just, you know, I think the fact that both you and I, and so many of our other colleagues that went through that program as staff, are impassioned by these things, I think also speaks to what that program was. And um, it's really sad that it's, that it's not going, but I just wanted to make sure to just extend some gratitude to all the people that work there and all the clients and the families that took part in that program. Likewise, I will echo 
that gratitude and uh base camp lives base camp lives in your practice yeah. it lives in mine it yeah, lives nice. in everybody's practice so and it will it'll rise from the ashes of addiction <laughs> treatment into something just as meaningful i'm sure yeah awesome thank you sir and we'll uh, yeah. talk to you thank again you soon. yeah it's great having you thanks Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Powerful. My name is Jeff Coulard, and you can learn more about the work that I'm doing in the nonprofit sector with outcomes and evaluation work. If it's something that interests you, if you think that your program or your team might benefit from having a conversation, then we should chat. So www.jeffcoulard.com and just hit the contact me button and we can just start a conversation. And as always, I appreciate when you share this podcast or when you drop a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from these days, it really helps us reach a wider audience and have a bigger impact in the world, which is really important and really why we do this. Thank you again for listening and have a wonderful week.